Welcome to Precept Responsibly, a podcast working to make precepting approachable over happy hour. I'm Jason Mordino. And I'm David Hughes. Let's get into some precepting. Welcome back, listeners. Jason Mordino here along with Dave Hughes. We're excited uh, to start the brand new 2023 year for Precept Responsibly with two phenomenal guests uh, that I both and actually Dave also have personal connections to. Um, we think this is going to be a, a great episode for us to kick off 2023, uh, celebrate the holidays in style, uh, and and really um, bring you guys something great to start with. So before we jump into our subject, uh, I'm going to quickly introduce our two guests today. We have uh, Yacinda abdul Mujikabir, also known as Jam or Dr. Jam, uh, and Dr. Kevin Astle. Uh, why don't you guys tell us a little bit about yourselves, background, how do we know each other, what do you do as a, in a professional world, and um, maybe top it off with what you're drinking. Okay, so I guess I can start because Jason introduced me first. So I'm just in that room with Kevin here, but I go by Jam. I'm currently um, an assistant professor at Loma Linda University in uh, Loma Linda, California until December 31st. And then starting January 2nd, I'll be an assistant professor of clinical pharmacy at the um, SCAD School of Pharmacy at the University of California, San Diego, as well as the University of California, San Diego's Division of the Black Diaspora, as well in African-American studies. So I have a two-fold appointment there looking at um, kind of doing my work with infectious diseases, but through that lens of racial inequities. So I do a lot of inequity research, but I am a traditionally trained um, infectious diseases uh, bench top researcher. So we know each other, though, through the farm grant wish list, uh, Jason and I. So uh, me, Jason, Kevin, anyway. So we met through the farm grant wish list and then our shared interest there. And it has been a blast. And I know Dave, because him and his, myself and his wife, we went through the trenches of fellowship together in like sister training programs. So I knew about Dave for a long time, but we met officially when I crashed the oncology um, happy hour. The I don't know what conference it was, but when I crashed the happy hour. Oncology, oncology pharmacist for my plug for my onco farms here. Always the best <laughs> well, happy hours. Well, Always well. the best meetup. Oh, that's why you crashed Hopo this year. That is true. It was, a great, it was a great happy hour. I did. <laughs> Well, uh, let me congratulate you, Jam, on the the change over to UCSD. We're really excited for you guys and um, excited to, to see you move across, well, not across the country, but across the state. Right. <laughs> Kevin. Thank you. Yep, yeah, I'm uh, Kevin Astle. I'm an assistant professor with the University of South Florida, Tanasia College of Pharmacy in Tampa. Um, I practice in ambulatory care with a research interest in HIV treatment and prevention um, and development of pharmacy services for sexual and gender minorities. Um, and kind of as Jam mentioned, I met Jam and Jason through Farm Grad Wishlist. Um, and kind of <clears throat> through some of the momentum there and similar work being done in the sexual and gender minority space. And one of the um, co-founders and the current chair elect for Rx Share, which is Pharmacists for Sexual Health um, Advocacy Reform and Equity. I didn't know the Needless RX share had a long name for its meaning. That's awesome. It was a yeah. long process coming up with the right acronym and like making sure that we weren't like, you know, hitting some other organizations, but um, you're really trying to encapture everything that we're doing with, as a group. Yeah, you're doing some great advocacy work. And, and I can certainly say like, I know Farm Grad Wishlist has been doing some great advocacy work, which is exactly why we wanted to get both you, Kevin and, and Jam on the podcast. We thought it'd be a great fit and have loved working with you guys. So thank you for, thank you for coming. Needless to say, we have two badass pharmacists on the pod tonight, and there's no better way to to start off the year. Um, but let's let's kick it off with uh, what you both are drinking tonight. We'll start with that, and then we can uh, dive into the topic. I'm having a glass of um, Cabernet Sauvignon right now. Um, one of my kind of favorite go to wines. Um, I signed up for the subscription service that it's kind of like a a collective that will send you kind of locally sourced bottles. And so um, this is one of theirs and actually supports the Trevor project, um, which is a great um, LGBTQ initiative. So that was a bonus plus with the bottle there. The real question, did you add ice to your? <sighs> I here we am go. a purist here. No ice 
in any wines, especially the red wines. Oh, thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Nice little chill, especially this time of year. Everyone missed the outtake at first when Jam said she likes ice in her red wine. So I'm uh, not alone. Throw our guest under the under the bus, man. Jam, what are you drinking? I do. So I'm I'm not drinking anything. So I I don't have anything. Everybody's drinking wine. <laughs> I don't have I don't have any I don't have any wine. So I should I was gonna grab some water because I went you know this entire time not feeling under the weather, and then of course the day that we have to record. I'm like, you know, here with this, a slight sniffle. So I've been just kind of in a weird, like, I'm not sick, but I don't feel well at all. <laughs> yeah. I can, I, I can, I can drizzly a bottle of like Mucinex or, or, or you just right? to you if, if, if you want. I was like, at this point, I'm too satirizing type of thing. So, <laughs> oof. Yeah. We don't want to, we don't want to mix things with that. Right. Um, how about Jay, you, Dave? What, you what are you drinking? Oh. Uh, oh, no, no, no. Go ahead, Jay. All right. Well, I'm, uh, you know, Jam, what I'll do is I'll have an extra beer for you today. I'm drinking a round of cheers from Athletic Brewing. It's a non-alcoholic beverage for the day. So I'll happily have a second one uh, on your <laughs> behalf to uh, to cheers to that. Dave, how about you, bud? And I am drinking in, in the spirit of, of Christmas. If you celebrate the holiday season, I am drinking Jolly Juice with three J's from Treehouse Brewery. So I'm a huge Treehouse fanatic snob. Um, but they made a Christmas special, which is shocker, a double IPA from, from the Treehouse Brewery. All right, let's uh, let's get into the episode now. Um, so, you know, today's episode, we're really going to focus on, on DEI initiatives, diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, why they're important, um, why and how they're incorporated into residency programs, and how, they're incorpor- how it's incorporated into precepting. Um, Jason, why, why, um, can you, maybe you can start off by telling listeners a little bit of why we chose this episode and why we think it's important. I mean, I think that everybody should be doing episodes on this and every organization should be having these conversations. It's, um, should not be something novel or unique or interesting. But um, for me personally, part of it is because I work in the advocacy space through Farm Grad Wishlist, um, but also the the residency training environment, ASHP, now requires uh, that there is uh, some form of diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives uh, with a big focus on uh, supporting and recruitment. But I think one of the things that I want to do is expand that concept into the entirety of teaching, the entirety of uh, education and how do you create inclusivity in all aspects that you do. Uh, and, and that's kind of why I thought, um, that's why I thought it would be like a good fit for the program. Like really at the end of the day, like it's the right thing to do to treat people like people. And yeah, uh, yeah. I think, uh, I, I think one of the, I don't want to say one of the issues I have with, with ASHP, but you know, it seems like we shouldn't have to put formalities in place and address like the need to include this. It seems that this should be something that's just automatically included as part of, as part of like training. And like, as we acknowledge it, I mean, I do kudos, kudos to ASHP for do putting it in a standards to address it because it is unfortunately in, in an area where I, I think we lack, but um, ultimately I think, as you said, it, it should be something we, we innately do um, as humans because it's the right thing. Um, but I'm going to turn this over to our to our guests. Maybe the, maybe our listeners um, have not been familiar or, or not as familiar with with DEI, um, what it means, how we what it encompasses. Um, Jam, Kevin, would love to hear your your thoughts on on what DEI means to you, um, and we'll go from there. I can get started if that's okay with you, Kevin. Um, I didn't realize our names are so close in alphabet, so it's kind of like. You can go too <laughs> but, um, first. But um, I think that for me, what DEI means is recognizing for one, that all of us are different and all of our differences are important and should be acknowledged. But that means that we should all have adequate representation. So at the bare minimum, we should be representative of what the United States demographics represents when I think about just at least DEI and healthcare. Because for folks to receive the best healthcare, I mean, you want people that can that can recognize and that can understand what it is that you go through. I think a good example for this is when I talk to folks and they're looking for therapists. 
And then when they're looking for therapists, mm. they're always like, well, I want, you know, this therapist that I'll take me, for example, when I talk to a lot of my, my girlfriends, it's like, okay, I want a black woman therapist. She has to go through X things. And why do you want this, you know, person to be your therapist? Well, because you know that they can recognize some of the limitations that you have and they can understand. And then it makes the conversation easier to have. So um, when I think about DEI and healthcare, I think about it from that perspective. You want to have someone that can understand what it is that um, that you're going through, maybe the hesitations that you may have in healthcare. So it's our responsibility to do all this that we can to ensure that we can provide that type of representation and that ultimate type of care that folks can have. And then for those people that are in the profession, that we amplify the voices, that we make sure these folks have seats at the table, everyone has a seat, so that all of these different perspectives can be heard and ultimately we can get to our to what's supposed to be our goal when we take that oath of a pharmacist and providing, you know, good care to our patients. So that's how I think about DEI. Yeah, you how about you, Kevin? You covered it really well there. Um, and I think just to kind of piggyback off that, and you know, that really helps just lay the foundation for the you know diversity, and we need to diversify what our profession looks like so that we can, you know have all these different identities for our patients to relate to. And within training programs, we really need to focus on that um, culture and environment of inclusion. I think, you know, it's one thing to be able to recruit a diverse residency class, but if our programs or, you know, classes, everything's not set up to support that and to embrace that, those differences, those residents are not going to be successful and that's not going to be, you know, a sustainable environment. So we need to not only be doing better at recruiting trainees that you know, represent our demographic, but I really think that we need to be fostering um, you know, that environment that we need. Kevin and Jam, I think like, you know, when we talk about farm grad wish list, we talk a lot about like uh, diversity, equity, inclusion based on like ethnicity and race, RX share. We talk a lot about gender identity, sexual orientation. Are, are there other types of diversity and inclusion in our spaces that we should be including, like what what's the optimal that we should aim for across all um, types? I feel like there's so many yeah. examples, you know, outside of some of those obvious that we can think of. Um, I've my dad's a pharmacist, and um, in a former practice, he was working with a colleague who had visual impairment. So that you know, person was working at a traditional dispensing community pharmacy and like just thinking about how can this workflow work for somebody that has a difficulty reading? Um, you know, it's not intellectual. It's just literally visual. But being able to read and keep up with the cues, I mean, that's a struggle. So you're finding that work environment that fits. So, mm. you know, looking at our ableism and, you know, how can we kind of shift pharmacy to fit different ability statuses? Um you know, kind of covering, we already talked a little bit about racial and ethnic minorities and um, sexual and gender minorities, but there's so many different facets that we can do to improve. And I'd say, you know, pharmacy is good about improving um, gender equity, where I think our female representation, you know, is improving in pharmacy. I think in leadership, we need to see some overhaul, but absolutely, um, pass some of that over to Jam. Yeah, thank you, um, Kevin, for that. And thank you for that question, because I think it's a really good one. I know that a lot of the literature and just a lot of conversation is really kind of monofocused. Not exactly monofocused, but I don't know. It maybe it's just my bias and just my <laughs> my hope, my my bias against humanity. But I feel like it's hard for people to kind of juggle and understand that, you know, inequities can exist amongst Absolutely. different folks. And it's like, okay, well, let's hit it where when we think about, you know, racial and ethnic inequities or disparities, and it's very easy to call those out. Like, mm. it's very easy to, to see those. It's very, they're very visible. When it came down to COVID-19, I remember I was looking at the CDC stats and just the way that they had, like, the tables marked for, like, um, the numbers or the disproportion. Like, people that are people of color were, like, one 1.2 times more likely to be hospitalized, like, two point. 2.4 times more likely mm. to uh, die from COVID. Like those numbers were really easy for us to see. But I think what Kevin brings up in terms of like ableism, and even when it comes down to, to, to measures that are put into place that are that are placed there with equity in mind. So let's take for, for example, the test to treat. 
So like when you look at something like that, we're like, okay, they're working to target, you know, people of racial and ethnic groups and, um, you know, and all of these different things. But then we don't start thinking about the intersection. So like Kevin talked about with folks that made stuff, well, when we think, when we have an ableist line anyway, so we think about, you know, those folks that may have disabilities, well, how is it that they get to these locations for test to treat? No one's, no one's having that discussion. Or when we think about, you know, just certain other limitations that make language barriers too, you know, that's something that we're not considering when we talk mm. about inequity or equity. So I think that we really have to focus on the fact that they don't just exist in silo. Or even when we talk about the LGBTQIA plus community, I think that we oftentimes forget to talk about that in the context of how it is that racial and ethnic groups can overlap with that. Just this intersection here is very, there are very few instances where marginalization is monofocused or it's only one area where where marginalization exists. Mm. So when we think about um, when we think about COVID-19, I think that's a good example. So we, we saw the inequity. We talked about that, that we saw with, you know, individuals are racial and ethnic minoritized groups. We saw those inequities. We saw that individuals are part of the LGBTQIA plus community, you know, really suffered from COVID-19 and really hit that community hard. But when we think about individuals that are like black and trans it hit them almost 50 times, you know, more than it did like the yeah. general public. They were 50 times more likely to to um, to suffer from COVID-19 in any way, that being financially, that being, you know, having been infected, some type of disproportionate poor impact. But we don't think of, we, we, we're not necessarily thinking about it in that respect for those multiple identities that exist in marginalization. So I think um, as I think about this a little bit more, I think humans are very good at like looking at one problem and trying to solve it. And I think you're absolutely right. Like we can take a monofocus, but like you're right. No one person is one thing, right? Like um, you're many different things all at the same time. And that juggling that intersectionality is really challenging, but that we need to create spaces that allow for that intersectionality of the individual within that space, particularly in a learning environment as like we're going to try to focus on a little bit. So how do you see us, how do you see us trying to create that space for multiple different types of individuals all through the same conversations on diversity, equity, and inclusion for our trainees, for our learners, while taking intersectionality into consideration, but maybe making that like a little bit simpler for people to understand. So, yeah, no, I think that I think that that's possible, but I think that I, well, OK, so I think that that's in an ideal world, something that we could consider doing. But I think that it's just it's impossible to do, mm. you know. So when I think about this, like when I think about myself, mm. so I'm black and I'm also a woman. So it's hard to just take stock of the fact that I'm just a woman. Because at the end of the day, I'm always going to be a Black woman. Mm. So the adversity that women face is always going to be compounded for me. Absolutely. Because I'm not only going to face, you know, the adversities that women face, I'm going to face the adversities that Black people face. Mm. So now I'm facing the adversities that Black people face, and then I'm facing the adversities that women face. And then I'm also thinking about, I'm young and I'm in academia, so now I'm, I'm, I'm I'm battling this this space of ageism. So mm. I have all of these different factors that can um that can result in just marginalization. Mm. So it's so often that a lot of our residents end up in this case. So you know they might not just be a woman. They may be a woman that's gay. They may be a woman that's disabled. They may be a woman that's black and gay. So mm. now we end up in this place of okay. So now we have to navigate all of these different spaces. But I think that. I think that it's important that we think about, you know, what does that look like for the trainee when we just focus on one factor that mm. may be that may be resulting in their marginalization. So and, I think and, that, yeah. And Jam, can I, can I, no, 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 you're, you're totally fine. Mm-hmm. I, didn't mean to, yeah. I, I don't mean to cut you off, but you, you just got no, to no. thinking, right? Like, like how, um, mm-hmm. you know, I guess, how can these things really affect your training as you, as you, as you go through this, right? And recognize that right. there is... It, there is some of this in in the workplace. Like, how does how does this diversity component affect your your training? How does it affect different different trainees? 
Right. So honestly, and I can come from just my perspective. So to put this into just very lay, I was the first black fellow in my in my fellowship training program. And I think it's very easy for me to just put this in, in clear context. So I was the first in, and so it was so it was very hard for me because I came into the program with, I'm not even gonna say that the that it was weight that my fellowship director placed on me, but it was weight that I inherently took with me. Because I'm like, okay, well, I have to do good in this fellowship because I want to make sure that other Black trainees are able to come here with no hesitation. But that's something that I have to think about as a Black person because we are limited in these spaces. So when I enter this space, it's that weight on my shoulders of, well, I have to do a good job because I'm a representation of the culture at this point. So I know that there are other residents that may assume this, this type of responsibility. Because when you think about these residency programs, it's very rare. I mean, let's just think about the landscape of pharmacy. So the landscape of pharmacy, individuals that are minoritized or just people of color are highly underrepresented in pharmacy. So we know that. So when we think about residencies, you know, the numbers are far less, you know, those individuals that occupy those roles. So when they go into these hospitals, they are oftentimes maybe the only Black resident that they've ever had the only Black resident that they currently have now, the only resident of color, I'm speaking from the Black perspective because I am Black in my area of, of marginalization. But um, it's it's hard because you have to carry this weight of, I want to do a good job for myself because I have my own personal goals. But then I also want to do a good job because I want other people, you know, that look like me to be able to train in this space and for them not to have to come against that. Well, we had so-and-so here and, you know, she didn't do a great job. So now we're hesitant about taking this chance on somebody that looks just like, you know, this person. So I know for me, that really impacted my training experience because anytime that I had failures that normally folks would have and maybe brushed off, for me, now that failure is compacted. Now it's running in my head. Now I'm figuring out how I have to fix it. Now I'm, I'm falling more and more in another spiral because I'm continuing to spin out from this one, from this one ordeal. And now I'm in therapy because I have to work through the trauma of like having to navigate being in this very intense space. So I, I think that it, it really can be burdensome. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's such it's such a great point, Jam. And and you know, I, I think to to myself and, and right, like this this topic could could bleed over into a million different disciplines, trainees, whatever. And I think across the board, we've done an okay job. Um, in healthcare of, of identifying that this is an issue, right? That, that the experience mm-hmm. you just explained is, is an issue, right? But the, the, the next step of like, how do we fix the issue is it, still like, in my opinion, needs, needs incremental amount of work, right? I think right. of something like, like disparities in, in, in medicine or cancer care, right? We, we acknowledge that there are biases towards race because certain races are at higher risk of cancers, but we don't, we don't, fix the issue. We don't enroll more on clinical trials, et cetera. And without going on a tangent, yeah. but really how, how, um, how do we start to get this message and improve, improve the environment of precepting for those that may not have experience, or let's say, frankly, like have no idea what to do. Um, how, how can they learn this information without ultimately being spoon fed information to say, this is how you should do this. This is how you should incorporate DEI. Kevin, did you? Yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> um, I can go ahead and grab this one. I, I think there's so much of there that um, you're trying to put together some action items um, in a paper we wrote recently for sexual you know, or for creating a um, residency program environment that's conducive and supportive of um, LGBTQIA trainees. You know, and we really battled with what do these action items look like? And at one point, we just had to put it there that. It is the preceptor's responsibility that we can't spoon feed you, that yes. you know, we can provide you a few different tools here and there. Um, you know, one of our comments we got from peer review was, you know, we needed more resources linked to the article. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, we're not holding your hand. We're not spoon feeding you. You need to recognize that this is an issue in our institutions and make it a personal you know, mission to go out there and really seek that um <laughs> seek out those opportunities. So, you know, listening to this podcast today. So please, you know, share this with people that you know that might be interested in this realm. You know, um, 
I think we're doing a great job in the publication space of highlighting some of these issues, trying to find, you know, some solutions to things. Um, and just really taking that on as, you know, with our CE, break away from a few of those clinical concepts. You know, you don't need to hear the same talks over and over again. Find yes. ways that you can diversify yourself and your um, knowledge base as a um, preceptor. Kevin, I'm going to give you a softball question that I, I hopefully I know the answer to, and I'm not caught off guard, but who knows? Um, why is it not the responsibility of the marginalized community to teach us about all of these problems? Marginalized communities carry so much weight, and Jam did a really good job of highlighting this um, in every facet of life that people just don't even realize. Like uh, a way to kind of circle back to this is with the minority stress model. Um, Kyle Wilby's listening. He's going to laugh because we've been kind of going back to this on all of our work, but it really is fundamental to everything where um, the theory is that, you know, an individual from a minoritized background, basically any scenario they enter and all their life experiences can kind of tie back to these different proximal and distal stressors. Um, and distal stressors are things that happen in the environment that are, you know, direct effects. So there's direct um, instances of racism or um, discrimination. And then our proximal stressors are just that anticipated fear for the environment. So, mm-hmm. you know, not knowing if my next preceptor is going to be accepting that I'm a gay man, um, not knowing if, you know, mm-hmm. patients are going to accept that. You know, the pressure Jam put on herself for setting the example for future yeah. Black trainees within her program. Like, those are barriers that nobody sees. And then to, like, ask these communities, like, hey, y'all need to go ahead and train us as well. No, we're suffering in this environment. <laughs> yes. enough. We don't need to do it for you. Like, it's just like a, kind of going back to that first statement when we started was treat people like people and be a good person. Like, recognize that everyone has differences and that you need to take the initiative to provide that care or training environment that these people need. Absolutely. I, um, Thank you, Kevin, for for saying that. I think what I want to like kind of pull together on that last piece is that that like just to put it in simple terms, like there is so much stress that our minoritized individuals are are discriminated against, individuals are experiencing that can't be seen, that they're processing all that stress, particularly as learners, in addition to all of the cognitive load that they have just from not understanding what a metformin does and how it works, that that to then ask them to have to teach you about themselves and about their community and about, uh, you know, the stresses that they're under rather than you as the majority individual, myself, white male, like it's on me, cis white male to like learn those things so that I can create the inclusive space, not ask you to teach me how to create the inclusive space. All of that being acknowledged, we are here talking about how to do that. So I, I, I want to first say thank you both for taking the time to um, guide some of this conversation. And, and I agree, Kevin, like we should be asking people who are interested in this space to listen to this podcast. But I think even the people who aren't interested in this space need to hear this piece here that like you are putting more stress on someone by not taking on some responsibility as the preceptor to do that. And you should precept responsibly plug mm-hmm. for the podcast to do plug. the right thing for the people that you're precepting like I, thank you kevin for putting it in like such plain words and and i love mm-hmm. the like minority stress model that's like a great um like way to like conceptualize the challenges with that that uh instance so definitely like the the preceptor should be the one doing the learning what are some other things that we can do both as individual preceptors organizations etc to start to overhaul our our training spaces to make them more inclusive for a diverse uh student learner space right i think what kevin mentioned was was so helpful and um jason i feel like you don't you don't ever give yourself enough credit but i think when it comes to allyship you do a phenomenal job. And one thing that I think you do really well is that you listen. And it's really kind of like that slow to interject type of type of listening. So I don't know, is that active listening? I don't know. Maybe I'm a poor listener. But, but that's one thing. <laughs> that's one thing that I think that you do really well. And I mean, even like for me in that respective, like when I have questions or when I'm explaining to you maybe a circumstance 
that may have happened with the student because you are you do pre you are a residency program di director so there are certain things you would obviously know a lot better than I would but I've always really appreciated at least since we've been in, in communication with one another you've always been very slow to um to interject and it's always kind of like that interjection kind of devoid of judgment mm. so I know that we talk about like implicit and then like explicit biases but the thing with implicit bias is that you know a lot of times it ends up being this case of these are just in, these are thoughts that we have these are not things that you know we can control these are just like our, our these are our thoughts but what we can control is how those thoughts could become actions so I think being conscious of that, being conscious of what and what be having a definition of what is implicit bias, mm. and when does it become an issue? Because I'm, it's like, oh my goodness, you know, how do I stop these thoughts I have in my head? Well, you can't, you know, like these are just inherent thoughts. But we mm. can stop how it is that we that we let these thoughts come into play. So I think the biggest thing that that we can do is listen. And then also, you know, start learning these different definitions. And there are a lot of great places now, a lot of good resources that can be helpful. Like you said, I think this podcast is extremely helpful. So things like this, there are additional podcasts. I know there's one, um, and I can send that so it can be linked, but they have uh, one for uh, medicine. And it's like an anti-racist, it's called, um, it's something like anti-racism or like an anti-racist podcast that's actually done by um, a collaborator of mine. He put he um, runs the podcast and it's really good. And I really love, you know, how they really have an inviting conversation and just talk about, you know, these are racist things. Let's bring to light, mm. you know, what racism looks like in medicine. And then um, there are different CEs that are available. Um, I know I did one in particular for um, MSHP kind of talking about just systemic racism um, and the pharmacist's role in combating it. So there are so many just learning opportunities. And um, ASHP also has a DEI toolkit available that um, folks like Lakeisha Butler were involved in, you know, providing these presentations for that. So, so many resources that are out there to provide education on just that, that basis of what is it that, um, what is it that these behaviors can look like in terms of promoting um, diverse and equitable and the inclusive settings. Absolutely. So I do think, and then also one thing I'm gonna I'm gonna add a slight plug. You do so it. we do have a manuscript that we uh that we published actually like it was through some uh farm grad wish list collaboration we had previously, and I kept writing with that one particular trainee that we wrote with, um Yodit Teklu, but um is the first author, and then um myself, I'm I've, I was like, oh wait, is Elon on that paper with me? It's not that paper though. <laughs> but, um, so many too many papers, Sham, too many right. papers. I was, I was like, wait, wrong one. <laughs> promoting like health equity education and postgraduate training. And then one thing that we talk about is kind of using like the literature that's out and having like these really low barrier things you can do in, in pharmacy. So uh, what we do um, or low barrier things you can do, they were having like lunch and learn where they would have like the publication and they would talk about, okay, so like like Dave brought up with oncology, we see disparities here. And what, what are we gonna do about this? How do we combat this? It was something that was started and it was published out of, I wanna say uh, my hospital in Maryland. So like it was an emergency medicine physician group that started like these lunch and learns. But I was thinking to myself, this is super low barrier for pharmacy. Like you could have, you it's, we could very easily integrate some some mm. DEI education through these lunch and learns opportunities Absolutely. to talk about where these disparities exist. Um, Jam, I think those are all really great examples of like pharmacy specific spaces to get information on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And thank you for sharing um, many of those publications. We'll make sure that we link to all of those, all the podcasts that were mentioned that, that Jam provided. Um, and what I'll encourage listeners to do is is if that part intrigues you and you want to dig deeper, like consider like generic uh, information on diversity, equity, inclusion, um, understanding racism, understanding, um, you know, bigotry uh, in general, like not just in relation to medicine, but take that deeper dive. And, and I want to give Kevin a moment to um, plug uh, his resources. I know you've got some really great uh, papers, uh, particularly in the, the the sexual health space. Kevin, why don't you hit people with some great spaces to get uh, information? Yeah. Um, so looking at sexual and gender minority health, there are a lot of really good resources out there. Um, 
one of my go-tos I've been using recently is from APHA and the um, HRC or the Human Rights Campaign. Um, they put together a toolkit for providing care for transgender and gender diverse patients, um, which it puts it in such simple terms and such a great handy guide that um, any pharmacist can use it. It's applicable for all practice environments. Um, and really looking at sexual and gender minority health, one of the big things is that implicit bias and you know, really looking at um, a lot of how we interact, whether it's with trainees or with patients or with providers. Um, and an article I wrote, I kind of mentioned already with um, Alex Mills and Christopher Medlin, you know, we look at in training environments, different scenarios that either we've experienced or you know, we know that occur. And there's so many instances where um, preceptors or different providers in the clinic might make a um, joke about a sexual or gender minority patient. Um, just offhand comments about whether it's HIV risk, STI risk, um, and all these different things, you know, and having really sex negative conversations. And, um, you know, as preceptors, if we're having those conversations, we, you know, that's a first step not to do. But like, if you're hearing that happen, um, I'm so guilty of doing this of just like either ignoring it, um, not acknowledging the elephant in the room. Um, but those are things that how that trainee takes that moment of, if you're not acknowledging it, then they see that as the example and like, okay, like they're condoning it. Um, and so just really trying to set the example and kind of put out there what you stand for and what you don't stand for. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, what I'm hearing, Kevin, is like just teaching yourself isn't enough, right? Like you can't just, oh, I know the right answers or I know how like you might be negatively impacted as a minoritized individual, but you have to walk the walk, right? Like like you see something, say something. Someone, you know, I, I think you quickly mentioned uh, attendings, but like, like if an attending is making racist comments or, uh, you know, disparaging comments about gender, like you need to be the one to say like, that's not okay. As opposed to the person who's like steps off at, after and you're like, Oh, uh, that's just so-and-so like we kind of let him just do his thing. Uh, we'll say let them do his, do their thing. Um, you need to really walk the walk is what I'm hearing. Yeah. And I do want to kind of, add on something that Jam said earlier about um, being an active listener and, you know, listening. I think there's the other part of listening and believing um, because like me as a you know, white cisgender male, I can walk into a space and, you know, if I don't um, reveal my sexual orientation or, you know, what I'm passionate about, mm. you know, I can pass as just any other, you know, just cisgender white male and when I hear stories or, you know, I, I know that women, um, you know, racial and ethnic minorities kind of face disparities in these environments. And mm. I don't know what that looks like. Um, and that's a privilege that I have. And that's something that kind of really drives a lot of what I do is I don't know what it's like to walk into a room and to immediately just based on your appearance and your identity, be discredited or, you know, be held to a different standard. Um, and taking that further, I don't know how bad it can be. Um, when I hear stories, it's appalling. Um, just what happens in this small pharmacy world. Mm. Um, and it's so easy to like jump to this conclusion. Like, well, I've never seen it happen. So that can't happen. Yeah. But like, no, you don't have that identity. You don't have that experience. We all have different lived experiences. And so yeah. like, as a listener, like, listen, you know, seek out and find you know, what these experiences are and learn that that's occurring in the environment around you and push others to do better. Absolutely. I think this is all on this. I, I think this is really continues to resonate on the same thing, that theme that we, we know it's a problem, right? People like try to try to gain more knowledge base, but don't really put it into action. They continue like, you know, it, it's just very difficult. And I think that's the theme that we're continuing to hear here. And I, I think they're all really great points. So I, I think the next step is 
how do we take it to the next level and how do we incorporate it into, you know, at, at the root, at the root fundamentals of a pharmacy practice or any, any, any healthcare practice, right. In, in the curriculums, into professional organizations, how do we get there to the next step and actually drive these themes into action? Um, accountability. <laughs> I was like, I, I hate to, it's always that, Oh, well, we don't need, you know, like big brother watching us or have to report, you know, to someone, but we do. The reason that people do things at the end of the day, I mean, like, it's a dedicated bunch of people that really care about humanity as a whole, right? It's like, mm. you know, we want, we want to make sure that adequate health care is provided to everyone. But we have to be honest in stating that at the end of the day, just us as human beings, we're selfish. You know, like, we are focused on what it is that we know. We're focused on our ideals in general, like, when it comes to the world at large, that's what it is. So I think that we have to have accountability and for residency programs, that accountability comes from up top. So ASHP has to make this something that has to be integrated, something that has to be a part of these residency programs, because at that point, now folks are going to start taking this seriously because you don't want to get deemed or not having inclusive practices. You don't want ASHP to, you know, take away that accreditation and that opportunity to have residents. So we need that support from up top, but then it becomes that question of, well, how do we get the people up top to also realize that this is a priority that they need to have and that this needs to be a priority in these residency programs? Well, we need folks at the table. We need representative folks at these tables that make these decisions as to what are these elements that need to be included in the residency program. I think we're making headway with Paul Walker being president. I think I've seen more, you know, I saw more people of color get awards at ASHP, I think, than I ever have. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was really excited to see that. And I'm really excited about Paul because I think that he really, like, has this vision of inclusivity. And I think you you lead from the top. So I think that there needs to be a prioritization from these or from the professional organizations that that oversee these residency programs because then we start having these reasons to we start having these reporting measures or these mm. um I don't know how to how to put this into more uh, into other more specific terms and you all are probably more eloquent with that than I am. But I think that we that we need to have some type of accountability there. And I also think that and we need to have representative folks at those tables because that's how we make this conversation something that needs to be had. But then um we also need to talk about reporting. How it is mm. that folks can report Absolutely. when they are in situations or programs that are not inclusive and um, that are not equitable to them. Because how often is it? And Jason and I, unfortunately, have talked very recently about um, and, and quite often about individuals that we've heard that have been dismissed from programs. And we can we can clearly link that. So like it's obvious that they were unjustly, you know, terminated, but then also it's likely linked to, you know, we talked about that intersection or that the multiple marginalized identities. So we end up in this place of we we when you and I were both talking, we were like, oh, dang, well, we could send them to ASAP to report it. But are they really going to care? Are they going to intervene? (laughs) You know, if they do this. So yeah. I think it really comes from those from it. We have to start with the with the professional organizations. We have to start with that prioritization there. And then we can start, you know, really emphasizing it to these residency programs. Like, I hope that people start doing the self-education and start, you know, creating these forms for their trainees to learn. That's my hope. I hope that they do this. But I hope. But having this hope doesn't mean that this will happen. Mm. And I can't, you know, be as foolish and as hopeful and as, you know, ambitious. And um, my, my my family, namely my husband, <laughs> he talks about mm-hmm. I have like, you know, this kind of like naive, like, I, you know, I want them to do this. And I think because I want them to do this, they're going to do it. And he's <laughs> like, come on, girl. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's not going to happen. So I think that uh, it's going to come, it's going to have to come from this initial, this initial hammer being brought down. Like, hey, we have to make these programs more diverse. We have to make them more inclusive. Yeah, I think the like accountability piece is like important. And Jam, mm-hmm. you and I have been talking about it. I'm, 
I'm going to pause for a second, just say I'm glad Raheem's the realist uh, and, and able to like <laughs> hold you down and, and keep you going. Um, but, uh, you know, you're right. We have been talking a lot about like what is happening and like particularly like the ASHP space or the org space. And mm-hmm. and I think there have been some like, I'm, I don't want to put a adjective to them. There have been some victories, whether they are good, big, small, whatever. There have been some victories in getting like the DEI requirements built into our, um, you know, training component. That's great. That's one small piece of what ASHP touches. Um, and, and now we have some resources from them. Great. We got some data based on match statistics. That's great. I think those are really small pieces. And like you said, like there's still data missing. There's still additional places that they can hold people accountable. There's still additional things they can they can go. What do you think are those like next ways for us to push to the next level? So we got some some small victories in. How do we build that into the next level? Right. So I would say one, the allocation of funding. So actually being able to fund opportunities for these trainees to go and and, and to participate in, in these different endeavors, leveraging relationships that they mm. that the hospital or the organization may have with community organized with other community organizations, because then that introduces that opportunity to have these equitable types of um equitable type and tangible types of experiential opportunities. So uh, for example, um, there was a residency program that I saw, uh, I believe it was a med- it was a medical residency, but they were, it was OBGYN, but they were, they were sending the students to, um, I think like an area in Africa. And it was like, a, it was a uh, exchange program that they had set up with the residency, uh, with the hospital. And the students were able to go there and then they were talking about just the experiences and just the reflections that the students had after they were able to participate in um, that training experience. So being able to have these types of training opportunities where, you know, one, we're talking about, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, but then two, now they're able to actually have these things that they can touch and say, okay, now I see how healthcare isn't provided equitably and I can identify my specific role. Mm. So I think it comes to allocating you know, funding for this, but then also allocating time to when it, to allowing for allowing for these uh, trainings to be able to engage in the work in this way. So I guess it comes from the residency programming directors prioritizing the importance, right? But then too, when that when that priority is allocated to that importance, start thinking about you know how is it that we do this do this in a way that's supportive to them, but make it so that these are our experiences that they won't forget. Absolutely. And I'll throw in like my two cents before I tag you, Kevin. Um, I do want to get your perspective on this, especially because like I know you guys have been doing some great work with Arc Share. But like my perspective is like an RPD. Um, like it's great that ASHP is pushing RPDs to do more, but we are a small portion of a larger portion of an entire organization. Uh, I should say even just a department. And then you've got that department, which is, a you know, potentially other divisions in that department, community, specialty, et cetera, et cetera, um, rolling up into a large organization. And, and I, I think, um, you know, by continuing to push in every direction is where you get like the most kind of uh, continued snowball effect where more and more people learn about what they need to learn about, start walking the walks, start having conversations and then are able to hold higher level uh, individuals accountable for some of the the statements that have been made, some of the promises that are coming out, uh, et cetera. I will say like as kind of quote unquote, the middleman, the middle person, it's hard. And, and I think one of the best things to do is continue to advocate for um, everyone to continue to, to move forward and, and um, making it, like diversity, equity, inclusion, a priority in their space. Um, Kevin, what's your perspective? Yeah, I've got kind of two key thoughts here. Um, I hope I don't forget the second one. But the first is that what we're doing right now, a lot of it is looking at with our current system in place and current model of how can we fit DEI into this? How can we, you know, add in training, add in accountability and reporting? And that's good. But really what needs to be done to truly make this that kind of last piece of equitable is to mm-hmm. review the whole model and take every single step and every single policy and see, look at that through an equity lens. And is that truly equitable um, or is that something maybe done there? So like 
big ones in the first stage of recruiting, the cost to apply for residencies is astounding. And like, I know there's some external factors there, but like $40 for every add-on application after the first four is just insane when programs don't see that money and trainees don't realize that part. Um, And then, you know, on-site interviews, I, you know, I like to applaud BMC and a lot of other programs that are continuing to offer virtual interviews to really break down that cost of travel and staying and, you know, short notice flights. Like that's alone hundreds of dollars. Yeah. So just, you know, reviewing what we can with our system and recognizing that it's not equitable and like throwing it all, throw it all out there. Like there's nothing that's off the table because what's, what's happening right now is not working. Um, my other kind of second part tags on to the small victories. Um, mm. And I think this is something I've been very critical of, of a lot of the pharmacy organizations. Um, you know, a lot of them across the border having initiatives to work on DEI and, um, and there are, there is a lot of progress happening right now. You know, there's a lot coming from ASHP and ACCP in particular. Um, AACP has the EDI Institute, which is an amazing forum, just as a shameless plug there um, for a good time. But I, I think as a member of these organizations and not involved at the board or leadership level, you're not seeing the bigger picture that bigger picture is not transparent to us. Um, so all that we're seeing as members or you know, the fringe is these are these small victories. Um, and someone that's critical of that, like we're celebrating sending out a DEI survey. Like that is excellent to be collecting this data, but like what's happening with that? Mm. Um, and this is a conversation I've had with some of the leaders and you know, rec- it's the balance of that there's a bigger plan in place that we're just, you know, got to be patient and let it unfold. But then there's that same kind of reverse of that of, oh, let's just be patient and give it a few more years. Like, let's just keep on passing this problem along and, you know, see this small victory that, yes, we do need to recognize that and celebrate those small wins. But we also, I think, need to hold organizations and mm. also applies to institutions and, you know, any level. Hold them accountable and say, these steps are not going to do this. This is a start. Yes, that's good. But like, What's your five-year plan? Because the five-year plan, if it looks like five more years of these small changes, that's not cutting it. Yeah. So I think just holding that accountability there. Yeah, that's a great point, Kevin. So like, as I think about this from like a residency perspective, it's not like create a toothless DEI committee, celebrate that you created it, and then take no further steps. Like you have to have a broader vision for what that looks like. Be transparent about that vision so that people can hold you accountable by providing that transparency. Um, yeah, that's a that's a great point. And I think something um, something a lot of orgs uh, are currently lacking and, and definitely can um, benefit both, not just orgs, but also residency programs. I think like as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about this from the RPD lens, trying to recruit diverse candidates. Uh, like, I can say I have like our BMC all in committee, right? It's a DEI committee. It's based on like building and bringing in more diverse candidates to our program, ensuring that they have an inclusive space to that. Uh, But if that's my action item, that's not enough to your point, Kevin, like you need to keep it going and you need to continuously invest into improving. And I think how do you as like advocates in this space envision that kind of internal process happening for residency programs for training training student sites etc like how do how should orgs and leaders create that continuous investment uh into this process i think working into the strategic plan is you know start um and it's kind of my first yes. gut reaction is to say write a mission and vision for this yes. of like where does this need to go and just continually reflect on that like let's have our incremental goals but like let's not lose sight of this up here like i'm, I'm signaling it as if <laughs> listeners can see where my hand is <laughs> just saying like let's build to this like we see where your hand is. That's goal. all that matters. Yeah. yeah, Kevin's touching the ceiling, guys. If you can't see it, he's touching the ceiling. <laughs> um, uh, 
yeah so like just keep planning keep that vision in sight and recognize and always exist where you're at like let's say we made this change did it achieve what we wanted yes did it achieve more than what we wanted okay like can we like raise the bar higher mm-hmm. or are we not hitting the mark okay that that didn't cut it what about that didn't work so let's revisit this and reimagine it and you know start over like always have that continual was it um continuous quality improvement you know type mentality of review what was done how did it work did it was it sufficient or not oh man now you're talking pdsas you're talking uh, <laughs> in super healthcare quality improvement you're, you're talking my language man that's that's what we teach our residents every day uh but i love that i and i it love is. that kevin that, said i mean that, that i mean that philosophy that's can be applied and that philosophy can be applied to, to literally everything you do regardless like you know jason taught me that pdsa is the way to go he taught me what P meant, what D means, what S means. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but, Sounds like you forgot. But all, but, you know, but it all out. Plan, do, study, act. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I think the one thing, you know, that philosophy can be applied to so many different aspects. And even like in, in something like DEI, right, if, about continuously refining and improving on the inclusion process. I I, I don't know. I, I really I really like how you brought that in, Kevin. And um, it, it, I think it's awesome. Yeah, I think that's really good. I mean, because I'm thinking about it just from the perspective of I'm a researcher. So the core of who I am is is a researcher. Mm-hmm. And I flip everything into research. Kevin and, and, and Jason know this to be true. So, right so I don't know, product of training with Mike right back. So when I think <laughs> when I when I think about this though, every time that I do a research project, the one thing that I always go back to is my methods. I revisit them. You know, where they like, did I do a good job? Where was the opportunity for improvement? Mm. You know, when I'm moving forward with these next, how do you continue to have research projects? Will you continue to build on what you may have uncovered when you had, you know, that first research project or the area that you saw didn't go as well as maybe you had hoped it did? Will you go back, you modify, bam, that's another research project. So I think that's important, revisiting the methods, revisiting how it is that we are implementing these DEI measures, implementing this DEI stuff, but also establishing measures, which I think that's, which I think Kevin discussed, um, but I'm, I'm going to put measures, I'm going to put that word into play. So having measures and then using said measures to go ahead and actually, as a benchmark of did we do what it is that we said we do when we work this, you know, strategic vision and this mission, we have to keep coming back to are we serving who it is that, that it is that we that we meant to serve. So, and in the way in which we wanted to serve them. So I think that that's really important. So, and then also let's turn some of this stuff into, you know, research projects, right? We have to, we have to prioritize publishing this type of, this type of data. We have to prioritize this, you know, for different pharmacy journals. And I think JACCP mm. does a really good job at this. AJHP, you know, J Jaffa, um, honestly, honestly, the pharmacy journals do a good job trying to get this information out. But I think that we really have to prioritize that because how is it that people learn mm. about how it is that they can go about with structuring their programs? Well, they see what other folks have done. They see the the they see maybe like the floundering that folks may have had when they did this PDSA. And they can say, you know what, I'm gonna take this, I'm gonna modify it, and this is what I'm gonna do in my program. And then let me publish what it is that we did, you know, how it is that we added our own spin to this. So I think that's important too. Think about how we can disseminate this information, share with others. Jam, you're making me feel guilty for not publishing our work. Jason, I really wish that you would because I, I every time someone tells me they want to do a residency, I'm like, do you know Jason Mordino? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> They're doing nah, great stuff I over know. there. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's uh, like I spend so much time doing and trying to like refine do the QI process that like sometimes I forget that like there's just as much value in dissemination. Um, I. I I don't know. I see the next shiny thing. Thank you listeners for joining us for part one of this two-part series. Make sure you subscribe so that part two automatically shows up in your feed. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks again. Hope you all enjoyed today's episode. We thank you for listening. 
Uh, I just want to remind people, if you have an idea for an episode or you want to drop an audio comment or question, uh, you know, record yourself 30 seconds uh, on your phone. Send it to us uh, at preceptresponsibly at gmail.com. We also are on social media, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Find all of our episodes on your favorite podcast providers. We also have these as videos on YouTube. Today's episode was produced by Spencer Sutton. Music by Alex Grohl. That's it for Precept Responsibly. I'm Jason Mordino. And I'm Dave Hughes. Until next time, thanks all for listening. Do we know where we're going next, boys? (laughs) No. No? Okay. All right. We're both lost.